You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothman. Welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Carl Paul Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by our other co-hosts, Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. So dudes, Reinhold has four names, and he has two, he has two perfectly normal names, Carl and Paul. What's wrong with those? Why, why did he go with Reinhold? You don't want the doctorate, man. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but it must have to do with something in the same manner of how you're able to be so aggressive with his name. Reinhold sounds a lot more aggressive than saying Paul. That's true. Yeah. It's, it all sounds more German. Maybe that's what he's yeah. going for. Is, I don't know. His dad was Gustav. Yeah, maybe, maybe it was to like show uh, solidarity with the German Americans. Yeah. Is Reinhold um, kind of the German equivalent of uh, of Ronald? I wonder. Don't know. Well, interesting. That's my first name, Ronald. Yeah, I think we need. I think someone needs to do a dissertation on this. I think so too. This ripe field of of research. Hey, mate, your your first name is Ronald Clifton Bailey. It is. It is. Oh. It's named after my grandpa. My grandpa Ronald. I was always called Cliff. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so, whatever. Um, your case study. What's that? Your case study, dude. You didn't want to. You didn't want to be talked about like you were your grandpa. No, I. It wasn't my choice. It was. I think it was because my grandpa was named that that everybody called me Cliff. I don't know. It wasn't a post a postmodern rejection of tradition. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> when I was zero years old, I was like, I'm gonna, yeah, buck modernity. <laughs> Uh, whatever. Okay, so we've been going through some uh, biographical sketches of Niebuhr. First, we went through Dorian. Um, then we interviewed Dorian. Now we're on to Sabella's sketch. And we just interviewed uh, Jeremy Sabella um, a couple weeks ago. And we're going through uh, his biography and American conscience. In this chapter, I think we can say that this is probably the most exciting time to read about in Niebuhr's life. I, I know it's it's my favorite time, I think. Um, there's this burst of creativity. Niebuhr evolves radically and rather quickly. He's, he's meeting uh, people who would become some of the most formative figures in his life, and, and, ha- and he's having some of the most meaningful dialogues that are going to shape his thought. He writes some of his greatest books in this time, one of which is undoubtedly one of the greatest works of systematic theology in American history, maybe the greatest work of hamartiology ever, uh, study of sin ever. Um, we're into World War II on the eve of America's involvement. At the very end of this chapter, we actually see uh, the, the uh, America's involvement um, come to the fore. There's a lot of things moving and growing and shaking. And I would say if Hollywood ever made a motion picture about Niebuhr's life, this is the part of the movie where they would include bar fights and, and car chases, 
probably. Okay. It's huge. It's a huge time, explosive time in Niebuhr's life. Now, to get this started, we're going to be getting started in some familiar territory, actually. We've we've talked on here at length about Reinhold's relationship with his brother, Richard, particularly after Reinhold wrote uh, Moral Man in a Moral Society. We talked about it uh, at length when we covered Dorian's book. But I don't know. Do you guys think Sabella adds another flavor to these discussions here? How does Sabella paint this relationship and how does he paint the significance of these correspondences between Richard and Reinhold in light of Niebuhr's career? What do you guys think? I think he definitely goes uh, deeper uh, than Dorian was able to, I think maybe because of the length of Dorian's just being a chapter, but he just gives, a, I think, a more <clears throat> vivid perspective on the disagreement between them and how really how his brother H. Richard shaped him. Um, I think that is, that is much more explicit. Right. I mean, Sabella, it seems like this whole chapter, Sabella is trying to make the argument that that Richard had this effect. You know, when he gets to nature and destiny, he basically says this is this is this fulfills the completion of his brother's prodding at the very beginning, which is which I thought was interesting. Yeah. And, and obviously we can never be totally sure what formed Niebuhr completely, but. He definitely makes it pretty clear that, that his brother was not just like a critic of him, but that Niebuhr really took to heart what he had to say. I mean, he was, he was really, it really shaped his view of sin. Um, it, it seemed like Niebuhr was sort of on the fence for a long time about how exactly to view sin and, or just even view human nature. It was human nature good mm-hmm. or bad, or what was it? Well, how does it fit into the equation? And his brother seems to have really gotten in there and been like, Hey, look, the good things that come into the world come through um, something outside of humanity, right? right? The good that we do is not our own, but someone else's. Um, and yeah, I mean, it obviously got kind of personal too, which I think that he does a really good job of highlighting. Yeah, it's a good point. What do you think, Aaron? Um, I, I just, I think what you guys are saying about the, the depth and the scope that Sabella brings, which is quite different from Dorian. I think Dorian is, if you recall our conversation, he's writing these massive volumes on so many um, theologians from the liberal Protestants movement. And so there's very limited space you can provide, though um, the section on Eber he provides is quite extensive. So I think Sabella does add a, a bit of kernels that make it a bit more personal, personal uh, to, to re- relating Niebuhr to his context and to how his thought develops. Well, and- I'm I'm curious what you guys thought about because it says uh, <clears throat> on page 33, H. Richard was encouraging Reinhold to appropriate the best of what their ministry-oriented upbringing had to offer. As Helen Gaston notes, the classic Reformation teaching of sin and grace were centerpieces of what they inherited from their father and what they inherited from their early experiences. Now, my question about that is, I, I definitely see the element of sin, right? And I see that it's a classic Reformation teaching of sin, it, for the most part, right? He modifies it a little bit. It's not quite what you would expect from a so Reformation. As, as individualized as is typically seen today. But for, yeah. all, for all intents and purposes, it's all-encompassing, unescapable. There's a lot of the same characteristics of Reformation teaching on sin. But I, I got to say, I, I don't, I think like, in terms of personal grace, I can understand how Niebuhr's teaching has a lot of like, hey, you need to have grace for yourself. Um, you need to be critical of yourself, but you need to have grace for yourself. It's kind of accepting, like the serenity prayer would be a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
where else does grace fall into Niebuhr's teaching, right? Like, and how does, because he is definitely a polemic, especially early on. And how does grace play out? The only way that I can really think of is that he definitely tries to get both sides a chance. He, 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 he attacks both sides equally, right? He gives his critics and his allies both a pretty good shot in the gut, but and that's kind of like, you know, basically, hey, pay attention to other people and not just yourself or take in the whole of the issue. But where does grace come into Niebuhr's teaching? I didn't quite see that, you know, and I haven't quite picked that up. Um, well, yeah. I think it's going to come out more developed in its most developed form. And this the latter half of Nature and Destiny of Man, the part on human destiny, um, it comes out in the serenity prayer, or I'm sorry, not the serenity prayer. I think I think this is an irony of American history where he gives the huge, awesome quote. It it concludes with uh, forgiveness as the final form of love, and the way that he treats forgiveness, and and in this context, it would be grace, is that our actions will never be completed in our lifetime, that that we will never be good enough, and that we have to be reliant that the God of history will correct our wrongs. Um, eventually in history. And all these things will be completed in grace, not just in an individual sense that I will personally be saved, but our failures, our moral failures um, as society will be completed as well. And he, he poses it in, in the form of resurrection that um, in, in the second coming, Christ will uh, fulfill all of these things. And that is kind of the, the act of grace. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I just, it's not, I guess, the conventional Reformation classical teaching that I would have expected. Um, I think that the grace in that sense that I would have been expecting in his teaching would have been a personal salvific grace. And that would be what I would say is like a classic, but again, I'm not an expert, but I, I think of, you know, the education well, I've had it would have been very pietistic in terms of the grace. Well, I, um, I think the difference is, is exactly within the development of the neighbor's thought. I mean, if you recall the first chapter, what was neighbor um, vehemently against? And it is this sort of German American attitude towards morality, which is just individualistic. It's yes. Just make yourself better, dress appropriately for church. And that's all Christianity has to say. But once we have a more cosmic view, which I think is what neighbor is getting at, grace is a, as Paul kind of goes in the first chapter, first few chapters of Romans, it is, creation being restored it is mm -hmm. things being made to right not just individuals uh being done that to that so yeah that's right and and zach i'll push back a little bit because i don't think that his view of sin is traditional reformed or like kind of what everybody is teaching i think that it's different in the same way that his understanding of grace is a little bit different and that sin is different and that it's it's collective it's systemic it's a part of a collection of people. It's not just this individualistic, you know, oh, I had, you know, I participated in this sexual immorality or, or, you know, I, I drank one too many beers or, or something like that. I don't know, like how, how we typically construct sin. He's not going there. He's going to kind of this very deep and very broad understanding of sin, but also his view of grace is going to be very deep and very broad. It's going to be very collective. And it's also going to be very, uh, very in tune with the weaknesses we don't even know we have and the failures we don't even know that we're a part of yet. Um, I, don't, well, I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. I would, I would, I would agree with you that it's not the same conventional view of sin. Obviously 
I would say that he's a little more liberal theologically than any of the Reformation, you know, maybe the radical reformers would have agreed with some of his thoughts. But um, what I meant is it just has some of the hallmarks, right? Some of the same attributes, right? It's all encompassing. It, it like you cannot escape it. It is, it is part of the human condition. Like all these same things that I would have heard in like a, it maybe just stated a little bit differently. And maybe like, for instance, they wouldn't consider it biological, like the some of the reformers would have. But still, you can't get a, you can't get away from it. It's it's an inescapable part of the human experience. So that's and it's, in, it, it's inescapable not just in our own individual piety, but in our collective view and yeah. in our systemic yeah. really. View. It feels so like he's just there, there must be so there must be a grace there that can fulfill that type of sin as well. Does that make sense? No, quite. Uh, could you expand on that a little bit? Like, what do you what do you mean by that? Yeah, so if Niebuhr views sin as not just an individual thing, it's it's a deep and penetrating thing, but it's also collective and systemic, and it's it's it covers a broad people, and it covers epochs of history, you know, uh, certain types of sin and certain types of pride and and so on, uh, like the sin of slavery or or, or something like that, where it, it spans generations. Like sin can be this large. Uh, thing well then there also must be a grace that can fulfill that sin How, however he's viewing sin in the individual realm in the collective realm in the realm of history then there must be a grace that accompanies that that fulfills that in the end does that make sense so so his grace changes proportional to his the way that his sin changes so if you're sensing a, ch a change in his grace then there must be some change in his sin, his understanding of sin as well. Or there's a type of sin that classical reformation doesn't deal with. I guess I, I'm just not clear on, and maybe I need to do a little more reading here, but I'm just not clear on how that, like how he applies that within his framework. Like the sin is very clear. Like it, it brings clarity to the human experience to understand that um, sin is, a you know, this enveloped part, right? And that shapes all of his teaching. All of his teaching is kind of uh, bringing clarity to the sin of the world, right? And, um, but I, it, it, how does he preach grace? How does he preach like, hey, there's a rede there's redemption is possible. We can be redeemed from these things. We can be freed from them. Um, yeah, well, let me interject, Cliff, and just ask you, yeah. Niebuhr is obvious, well, it's not so obvious, but Sabella makes it a bit more of a point that he's drawing on Augustine. Right, yeah. Now, in the Confessions, Augustine has a really interesting top, a lot to say about grace, but he talks about how grace works within us at yeah. the beginning. Not that we have to accept, or we might not be in communion with the church or with Christ, but I think from what James K. Smith in his book on, on the River St. Augustine says, there's something that grace in work in us, right? And the way I kind of see what you're getting at, Zach, is even the serenity prayer where Niebuhr asks in the first line that God give me the serenity, that yeah. peak, that sort of, mindset that attitude is grace almost working within yes. somebody to yeah. to accept their limitations accept limitations between the tensions of life mm -hmm. because grace 
isn't this, and he says this up in the essay we, we read together um, a few weeks ago, but this, so this dialect between justification and um, I forget the other term in using the theological circles, but um, there, there's, uh, there's a tendency to view that once we've been forgiven, we, we no longer sin or something like this. Yeah. Uh, but once we're working through, we're being justified. We're still sinners. So we're in this tension in life and grace is working within us to, to function within that tension. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot more sense. Um, and I think I see what you're saying. So you're saying that in, like the serenity prayer would be a great example in that, that pleading with God for serenity is, is saying, Hey, like have compassion and mercy on me, you know, help me to endure the anxieties of the present. And help us as a like a society to endure the. You most could say it as a group prayer, right? Grant us the serenity. Um, exactly, and it is. That's it's kind using of his form. Yeah, and it, it's kind of it's kind of his version of how grace would find its manifestation in meaningfully in our communities and in our groups. Um, well, my intuition so- tells me, in you know, a lot of the times when someone asks for something, we don't view it as being completed until it arrives but by virtue of him asking for this thing of his recognition of his limitations the prayer begins by a recognition and that recognition is the work of grace itself mm-hmm. that god gives to, to people who are you know that so. we can do we can try to do everything we can here but we're still ultimately reliant upon god to fulfill our work that whatever, like whatever we we want to do, um, I, I think the quote is nothing that is worth doing is ever achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope, and that hope is in the final correction, the final putting the world to rights. That is the final act of grace. But it's also attached to the way that we sin here and the way that we detract from that central mission of Christ um, in ways that we don't even know and we don't even necessarily have power over even it it feels like sometimes because we're so corrupted that it's difficult for us to even see the sin that we are in and so we are reliant and so that's why the serenity prayer starts with that's with the serenity is is the recognition that we can't complete this whole thing on our own that grace is necessary to energize us and motivate us and complete our action and and maybe that's what makes his work somewhat unique and i think unique maybe from um contemporary manifestations of reformed classic theology is that i think that he's really committed to at least it seems like he's committed to concrete manifestations of grace as opposed to more abstract so when somebody talks about grace in the church they tend to just talk about grace in the church and a lot of people don't quite know what that means and they're kind of like oh yeah the grace or he's like hope right uh, hope is having that hope being able to endure through that time is an expression of God's compassion, his grace upon us, um, to, to be given serenity amidst the anxieties of life is a manifestation of that classical re- reformation grace. Um, and so that's interesting, you know, that's an interesting insight to draw because I, I, that, that's a challenge I think to me. And I think a challenge to anybody that's talking about grace to be like, Hey, what does that look like? How does that actually manifest itself in your community and in your personal life? Um, mm-hmm. That's an interesting thing he does because I, I think it, it opens my eyes to see that in his works, there is actually 
grace, but he just, he doesn't use the word grace conventionally in the sense that like a lot of times, and like I said, Reformation writing, they'll just write grace, 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 instead of saying, okay, like here's how that grace finds itself into your life. Here's how that grace finds itself in your community. Here's what it would look like if it showed up. Um, and it's normally filtered through some kind of doctrine of atonement today too, or yeah. like, uh, or sacraments. Yeah. Sacraments. There's like a moment where we receive that grace on Sundays or, or, you know, after confession or something like that. Um, so, do, you, do you guys do, by the way, Zach, in your church, do you do a weekly confession? Yeah, we do weekly. We do uh, like a, a, a call to confession, a declaration of assurance, a pretty liturgical yes. approach. But one That's of the very common. Me, well, one of the things that made me think of, though, as we're talking about this, is kind of like how a lot of Protestants, especially those who believe in like a real presence view of the Lord's Supper, um, however you want to, you know, if it's Lutheran and up and above and next to and behind and all the other stuff, or if it's the more unsubstantiation like, or whatever. Yeah, if he, more like my, my tradition would say he's he's present and he fellowships with us in the in the meal. Um, but oftentimes people will use it's a means of grace, right? They'll say, hey, this is a means of grace by which God supplies some grace to you. Um, and it would be interesting, you know, and maybe this is I hope it's not heresy, but maybe it would be interesting to replace that word with, um, you know, coming to the table supplies me with some serenity. You know, it allows me to then go out and to practice to live out the serenity prayer. It allows me to go out and to have compassion on others. Um, and so there's a meaningful way that, that that grace you're experiencing in the Lord's table is mm -hmm. actually going, it's, it's impacting you and bringing about a certain disposition in your life that you then go out and uh, that affects others. It's and I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but, but just by virtue of Niebuhr being an ethicist and somebody who is a bottom up theologian, he doesn't start necessarily from the dot, from the end doctrines, but from the fruits of those that we see on the ground. And I would say a fruit of grace is faith. A fruit of grace is hope. A fruit of grace is love. Yeah. Um, those are kind of the central virtues, right? That uh, of, of, of Christianity that are a product of that grace. Um, and well, so on the ground, that's what those things look like, faith, hope, and love, you know? Well, but I think um, this is a very important distinction. Very, very important because the, the, one, of the, one of the fundamental problems I have, I, I love to read Bart. One of the problems, and I think Niebuhr really strikes it, is he has this kind of otherworldliness, right? His, his stuff doesn't find, it's almost so wrapped up in like the Christ idea that there's, it's like, okay, well, how does this impact my community? How does this impact other people? How does this other, and it's almost like taking the Bartian view of, uh, grace, and then actually saying, okay, where does that touch down? What does it mean that you right. encounter the risen Christ in the communion table? What does that grace look like? How does it, what does it do to you? And Niebuhr is saying, well, it brings me serenity, right? I'm asking for the grace, the serenity that, that I need to get through the anxieties of life, yes. the meaninglessness of life. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's really interesting to see the connection there, because I think that's something that. And you can even apply it to all, all three facets of the serenity prayer, grace, courage, great uh or i'm sorry serenity uh serenity to accept things i cannot change courage to change things i can and wisdom uh each of these things are kind of the fruits of grace yeah, yeah. uh and he doesn't spell it out he would need a top-down theology i think to to yeah. really get into that grace and see it from the god perspective i guess uh well, this, I don't is, know. this would be I don't know. this would be a curious place to kind of i mean I don't, I don't know if we're ready to transition there but i think it'd be interesting to talk about Diedrich Bonhoeffer and his experience with Niebuhr. Yeah, get, can we get there here in a second? Because I had one thing to say yeah, about the Niebuhr brother interaction. Well, 
we'll keep that in mind. I'll remember. Yeah, let's keep that in mind. Write that down. Make a note. Um, <laughs> I wanted to say something about that I found in Sabella that was not spelled out at all in Dorian. I don't think. Follow me here. If you remember weeks ago when we read Dorian, um, Dorian kind of set this up at the beginning of the chapter. He was talking about how the liberals were all getting on, you know, Niebuhr after writing more man and more society and they were attacking him and Niebuhr was attacking them back. And, and it, it felt like Dorian then had this task of explaining that Niebuhr was still liberal and he chose to do that by way of this discussion between he and his brother to kind of show, aha, see, his brother points out Niebuhr's still liberal. He's still in the liberal tradition because he still has that hope attached to his, uh, to his individual. Sabella does something very different. Sabella shows, I think, this is a starting point where Niebuhr starts pulling away from liberalism at the behest of his brother and his brother's wisdom, something that finds its fulfillment and completion in Nature and Destiny of Man. And we can go through the process of this, and we'll go through all of them, where he takes a step back and views history from a God's perspective, from God's perspective, like a Hebraic or Augustinian view. He looks at grace and, and, and sin and how it functions within our daily life, within our ethic and interpretation of Christian ethics, looks internally at, that, at those things. And then he reaches nature and destiny of man, where we find this full um, assessment of sin and grace on both ends of the spectrum, sin and the human uh, nature uh, part of, hum- of nature and destiny of man, grace and fulfillment on, on the side of uh, human destiny. Uh, and he finally says at the end of this chapter that I, I, I don't have it on me right now, but he, he, he basically says this is where he reaches the fulfillment of his brother's critique, where he takes his brother's critique to heart. And he analyzes the full completion of sin and the ironies within it. By the end of it, he doesn't look, I, I'm sorry, Gary Dorian, he doesn't look liberal by the end of this. Okay, when he goes through nature and destiny of man. Yeah, I mean, I have to say the first time I read this book a couple of years ago, and even upon reading it again, I definitely find a portrait where Niebuhr occupies more like the not I'm not going to say Bartian in terms of him and Bart disagree on theology, obviously, and how the social implications of theology. But in terms of, you know, Bart wasn't quite a liberal, but definitely Protestants. He makes Protestants very nervous with his view of scripture and such. And I almost always viewed Niebuhr as occupying that space until I read Dorian. And I think Dorian painted a very strong picture of him being very theologically liberal, right? He he was committed to the liberal idea, the the the, the liberal approach to scripture, the liberal approach to theology. But Sabella definitely makes me kind of question that, come back around to it, you know. Listen to this quote, uh, and th- this is something he that Sabella brings out as Rich, as H. Richard saw it. This is on page thirty-two. As H. Richard saw it, the issue was neatly summarized in the book's title. Um, moral man and moral society. As tough as Reinhold had been on immoral society, he still held out belief in moral man. This is the liberalism. Consequently, Sabella says, uh, Reinhold remained too, quote, too romantic about human nature and the individual, and thus was still tethered to the naive liberalism from which he sought to break free. Sabella's talking about Niebuhr as 
as kind of breaking free from liberalism, which is interesting. Something should be said also, something that we've kind of caught, you know, little glimmers of in Sabella here and there is he does, Sabella, as opposed to Dorian, does come from an evangelical background. I don't think that he necessarily calls himself that now. I don't know, but we should acknowledge at least that Sabella seems to be coming from a similar place as to what what we are, you know, where where we have come from in our kind of evangelical roots and that type of a thing. So it's just something like, and I'm at the point where I don't know, like I is Niebuhr liberal all along, like kind of Dorian wants to say, or, it, or is there a maturity to Niebuhr's growth that kind of pulls him into this third way and, and decidedly away from liberalism? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I think I'd need more information. You know I mean? I, I, I've kind of not totally sure because Dorian definitely presents it to where he definitely he, he, I mean, ne- Sabella makes it clear that he was trying to break away and not be beholden to the liberal schema, but it's almost like he was trying to refor- reform liberal theology from taking both Dorian and Sabella's accounts. Cause it, it seemed like he was very clear about not wanting to be, not wanting to be considered uh, conservative, a, 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 a fundamentalist or, yeah, or somebody that not. Can't. so yeah. Any thoughts, Aaron? I was just looking because I, reflecting on what you were saying, uh, what you are proposing here, I was just trying to reflect on the amount of times Sabella refers to Niebuhr's development via his brother. And I mean, one of the things I think, one of the things Sabella does say on page 33 is that the tenor of Reinhold's work over the next decade demonstrates that he took his brother's charge to heart mm-hmm. so yes i can see what you're saying he does say that neighbor or uh, h richard was the catalyst for his brother's theological transformation which also brings a bit more charge and more flavor than dorian i think is saying in that chapter but one thing, so one way that I guess you could also add a bit of brute force to your proposition, or even maybe subtract it, is that Sabella goes on to say that though H. Richard was the catalyst for the theological transformation, Niebuhr is dialoguing with two other major figures in this period too, is Bonhoeffer and Tillich. Yeah, we'll get. To, let's get to them here in a second. I just wanted to conclude with this last quote it's right after sabella finishes up talking about nature and destiny of man um near the end of the chapter says quote on balance the lectures the gifford lectures which would become nature and destiny of man on balance the lectures represent the completion of a process rather than the breaking of new intellectual ground the process began with h richard's letter following the publication of moral man Helen Gaston observes that H. Richard spurred Reinhold's theological development through the 1930s and concludes that, quote, in some respects, the nature and destiny of man is the culmination of all that prodding from H. Richard. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. And throughout this chapter, it builds from this. It, it, so I just gave two quotes 
um, first H. Richards prodding of Niebuhr, and then finally reaching the culmination of the, the final book that's mentioned in here. And from, from, from the beginning to the end of this chapter, Sabella is trying to show this development that was all kind of catalyzed by his brother's letter about him not being critical of moral man enough, which is interesting. Let's talk Bonhoeffer. Opening thoughts on Bonhoeffer. I think it's just cool. I mean, that's all I got. I mean, that's what I would start thinking. It's kind of just kind of neat to see these kind of towering historical figures. They were just like, I didn't, the first time I read this, I had no idea that they were associated. I mean, we'd read a lot of Bonhoeffer when I was at Moody Bible Institute, believe it or not, you know, uh, he was a big influence, but I think finding out the connection between the two, it was very striking, you know, because I think that uh, Bonhoeffer, and I don't know this for sure, but it, he definitely comes into union where Niebuhr's teaching and he is, um, he kind of like me coming out of college, right? Like uh, he has that famous quote that he says of the faculty at union or of, of the program at union. He says, uh, as he as he infamously put it, there is no theology here because they were so they were so focused on ethics. And it's like, dang, man, that's a pretty cutting critique of a seminary, you know. But um, it was also kind of I kind of had a similar experience when I encountered Niebuhr when I was reading him for the first time. You know, I was kind of like, man, there's no. There's, well, I, I, I could where's see the theology. beef? I could. Yeah. Like, where, where where's the systematic theology? But it. <laughs> it's almost like, wow, like it's actually very disarming and very um, unsettling, right? And I'm not the caliber of theologian that Bonhoeffer was going in here, but it definitely had a similar experience of like, oh, this is a different way to do theology. Well, I can speak to Union for a moment because I was, I went there and I, I like, I didn't read Bonhoeffer's take until years later after I had left Union. Um, I didn't realize that he had said such harsh things about Union. Um, but uh, I remember coming back on one of my breaks and going and talking to some faculty members of my undergrad. And, uh, and I remember distinctly saying, because they were asking, asking, how's union treating you? And I was like, well, I didn't know you could do so much theology without the Bible. And, <laughs> and it's kind of a similar statement of like, of course, Bonhoeffer, a biblical theologian, is saying there's no theology here. But I, I was kind of reflecting on the fact that they do a lot of ethics. I think that's what I was kind of channeling there. Well, they do they a probably whole lot. They're very focused on society. And so it, you could call it social ethics. Yeah. Um, well, what I think is so ironic, though, like to tie into what you're saying here is like when I was at Moody Bible Institute, one of the first books we were assigned, or at least what I was assigned, was um, Life Together. Right. And then we also had to read oh, at some point there in the beginning, The Cost of Discipleship which is funny because it was informed by this liberal approach. I, obviously, like that's what Sabella's point is, is that the, even though he didn't like the way that, yeah, even though Bonhoeffer had his you know qualms about how they approached theology and how they were too focused on ethics, it's still, Sabella's like, well, it, he still came away uh, very concerned about ethics. And it's just so funny because that that still today informs a lot of conservative evangelicals like Bonhoeffer. But it's funny because Sabella's like, hey, this came straight out of Union. Like this comes straight out of his time at Union. This is something that shamed, not shamed him, uh, shaped him and changed him and yeah. made him this person that was more that emphasized ethics more. Um, so it's just really interesting to see all those connections. 
But the funny thing I think that's really comical about what you guys are putting up here is Bonhoeffer saying there's no faith without top-down theology. Yeah. But then he writes a paper for oh, the apostles, and then Niebuhr reportedly wrote from what Sabella writes, quote, there are no ethics here. Where is the ethical dimension in your account? A concept of faith without ethics, ethics is an empty concept. Can I just say for a moment that I, th I think Bonhoeffer said these things about there's no theology at Union in one of his letters, but I wonder if he was saying it around campus too. And Niebuhr heard that. There's no, the yeah. there's, there's no theology here. And then Niebuhr writes in his paper, there's no ethics here. <laughs> cool, but that, that same critique is a critique that smacked me in the face when I became, uh, when I was going through Niebuhr's stuff, when I started to kind of engage with his stuff, I, it, it was almost like that same critique could have been given to me. Like, what, what is this theology that you have that has nothing to do with your community or your social environment or that has everything to do with your pietistic view, but that's it? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just really. Gosh, can we just can we just take a moment and appreciate the fact that one of Bonhoeffer's greatest like one of the things he's greatest known for opposing the Nazis, uh, leading the confessing church, uh, being murdered, you know, in his quest to freaking kill Hitler. Uh, Sabella's arguing this all started from a little comment by Niebuhr on one of his papers. Mm. Okay. How beautiful is this moment of these two towering theologians, one of them having this effect on another that will ultimately lead um, to this great life of opposing a tyrant. Um, I, I should probably read this quote. So, so of course, Aaron read that one part. Uh, There's no ethics here. This is what Niebuhr writes in his, in his paper. There are no ethics here. Whereas the ethical dimension in your account, a concept of faith without ethics is an empty concept. According to biography, uh, biographer Charles Marsh, uh, Sabella writes, Bonhoeffer was, quote, mortified by the critique of Niebuhr. Yet it foreshadowed a momentous shift in Bonhoeffer's life and thought. A classmate took him to Abyssinian Baptist Church, a historically black congregation in Harlem, um, the church brought together religious uh, feeling, social justice, and biblical teaching in a way that left a profound impression on the young German. It sounds it, 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 Sabella just kind of makes it sound like this one little note at the end of a, a at the end of a theology paper kind of started Bonhoeffer down this trail. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, and I I would add another thing here that I think there's something very revealing in this section about Niebuhr himself because like I think that what we idealize, I mean, it, it may not be who we are, but it definitely shows you like who we're trying to become or who we want others to become, especially from a pastoral standpoint. So like uh, Bonhoeffer, you know, he, he, he goes to Germany after union and then he has, and then Niebuhr tries to extract him and bring him back to the United States. He, you know, then Bonhoeffer says, Hey, I'm going to have no right. He says, I have no right to participate in the reconstruction of the Christian life in Germany after the war, if I don't share the trials of this time with my people, right? Really striking, really awesome. Oh, quote. Yeah. He goes back and he ends up being killed, right? Because he, he tries to assassinate Hitler, gets put into a concentration camp. And then I think this is the part that is just so compelling. And so it's very revealing of what Niebuhr, I think, wants people to become, what he wants people to be shaped by. Um, Sibella writes, in an obituary for Bonhoeffer, Niebuhr noted somberly that this story, that, that his story, Bonhoeffer's story, 
belongs to the modern acts of the apostles. And I think that that says, you know, that's probably the most, I think, revealing statement I've ever read about Niebuhr personally and what he wants people to become. Um, Because he's saying, look, like this guy's like this guy is like the modern day Paul. This guy's like the modern day, you know, uh, Peter, you know, this is this is what we this is what we should aspire to be. This is what we should aspire to be as a community, as individuals. Right. It, It he's putting him up there as an ideal, you know, and I think that's really revealing because. Um, I think that's somewhat to me reveals a certain, uh, uh, I don't know how to say it, like maybe a conservativeness to him, right? In that he's, he's aligning, um, he's, he's trying to get people to align with this uh, view of this sacrificial giving of oneself for the community. Mm-hmm. But it's also From the New Testament. Yeah, but it's also yeah. the life of a very, a much more pietistic. Uh, uh, much more pietistic, right? Bonhoeffer was way more pietistic than Niebuhr, probably. At least from what, yeah. what I've read, like Life Together, The Cost of Discipleship, those are very, like, there's a reason they still stand so well in conservative communities today, in conservative churches, and why they're still passed out and distributed. Um, yeah. It's, but it's, it's, to be fair, Sabella even links together, like, Cost of Discipleship with with Niebuhr's influence. Yeah. You know, that the, the difference between cheap grace and the cost of discipleship, um, cheap grace, kind of representing that higher theology that is that is never kind of interacting with the world, that is never attached to what we do, yeah. um, ne- never applied to our ethics, you know. Um, and then the costly grace, which is which is all about what what kind of skin are you putting in this game, you know? But well, I, I think part of it is Niebuhr very seldomly, at least in my experience of reading him very very seldomly idealizes people very seldom does he does he give such such a glowing review and i know obviously it's in the light of the fact that he was killed in a concentration camp trying to kill hitler i mean how do you go wrong with that but at the same time niebuhr very rarely does that at least in my experience he very rarely says hey here's somebody that you know is right up there with peter and paul you know he's a modern version of these guys I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty incredible because, you know, again, he doesn't do that very often. So, yeah, that's true. Just think how, how proud Niebuhr must have been of his former student. I mean, what a wonderful story. Um, sad, tragic, but, but powerful. Yeah. Um, I, I, also, something that Sabella doesn't mention, I've never heard it mentioned before. This has always just been kind of my own private thoughts. Um, I, gosh, probably a decade ago, I read Bonhoeffer's Ethics. Oh my gosh, it is, it smacks of uh, nature and destiny of man. It is so dialectical. It is it, like, it seems like Bonhoeffer read nature and destiny and then, and then wrote ethics. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever read, uh, read that. Uh, it's, it's uh, not, obviously it's not as popular as um, cost of discipleship or life together, but, uh, but it is, it's very, it's, it's very similarly constructed as nature and destiny. So I, I do, I, I do wonder how much uh, I, I love that Sabella points to Niebuhr's influence, but I wonder how deep it goes. I think most people would say that Bonhoeffer was more aligned with Bart in a lot of ways. But I think the Bonhoeffer might be proof that you can kind of you can kind of pull from both wells. You know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, Tillich, let's talk about this guy again. Any, you guys pick up anything unique from this? I mean, again, it's just kind of like with Bonhoeffer. Like, I, again, the first time I read this a couple of years ago, 
you know, I knew about Tillich, knew about Bonhoeffer, knew about Niebuhr, but I didn't quite realize that they were all so closely associated with each other because there's such, yeah. you know, for as, for as strange as I think some of Tillich's ideas are, uh, he's incredibly influential in America, incredibly influential in theology in America. And um, I mean, nobody, maybe beside Niebuhr had such a popularity beyond maybe like Billy Graham. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, again, just, just from my outset, I mean, Sabella really paints a picture where it's like, these guys were very closely hammering out the details with each, with each other. Um, if I had a time machine to go anywhere, probably number one would be Greenwich village in uh, the 1960s where, um, you know, Bob Dylan, happy birthday, Bob Dylan. Today's his birthday, by the way. And those guys are, are hanging around. But also, I would probably make my way up at that time from Greenwich Village on up to Union Seminary. And man, I would have a blast. Could you imagine being there while all these figures are there? You know, it's a, uh, it's just Union was the center of the universe in theology for, for you know, a couple of decades. Um, not only that, but like Raymond Brown, one of the great Johannine scholars, uh, he was there. Uh, it was, yeah, it, these guys were all bumping shoulders at the same time. It's pretty, uh, it'd be a pretty cool time to be alive and be in New, in New York City. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Well, I, I think I found, so we were, we've been talking about like the influence that H neighbor or Richard it was so influential and so vital in Reinhold's development of his own theology. The, the last paragraph in the previous section, Sabella says, you know, uh, Richard was this catalyst for Reinhold, but he was dialoguing with two other figures. Tillich is one of them. And the one thing I found very, very interesting is, this sort of like emphasis on how compelling Tillich's understanding of religious language mm -hmm. was for Niebuhr. And so I began to wonder kind of, I wonder if Niebuhr would have actually taken his brother's charges to heart and actually formulated a theology if it wasn't for Tillich. Mm. You know, so maybe Richard was the catalyst, but Tillich was the vehicle. Tillich provided for him kind of a way to fulfill a lot of yeah. what H. Richard uh, and it even says like H. Richard was a big fan of Tillich, which is surprising to me. I don't know if that was surprising to you guys, but H. Richard is yeah. known, you know, as he's OK. H. Richard is no Billy Graham. OK, but he's um, he's definitely neo orthodox, definitely running with the Bartians. Uh, but, uh, but it is interesting to see him kind of latch on to it. Like, I think it's, it said, yeah, he even um, uh, translated um, one of Tillich's earliest books uh, into English, which I thought was interesting. And both Reinhold and Richard met Tillich when they went over uh, to Germany um, in the 1930s. And that's what kind of made them want to bring him over um, before even the war started and all that. Well, stuff. what I think is kind of humorous is also you can get a really strong picture of Niebuhr's kind of uh, social persuasion, or I guess his persuasive ability, right? He, he writes that uh, him and his brother conspire to bring Tillich over fr from Germany. 
mm-hmm. right, you know, in the 1930s. And they do so by convincing, and, you know, amidst the Great Depression, convincing the union faculty to take a 5% pay cut so that they can pay this guy. I mean, so Niebuhr, I love it. Niebuhr like looks out and he finds these people. And I, you kind of see this common theme of him, like, he's like kind of hovering around, oh, this guy's got good ideas. I'm going to like try to, and then, and then he persuades everybody on staff to like, you know, cut their pay, which is an unusual behavior. You know what I mean? Like, it's not something yeah. you find very often. You know, no. most people would say that you wouldn't even ask that question, but it shows a certain creativity and a certain, uh, you know, persuasion and manipulation. Like Niebuhr's at play here. He's like working his angles, you know? Um, Especially for a school that pays so little. Yeah. In comparison to others, you know? Yeah. Well, but I- you get a sweet Upper West Side Manhattan apartment. Yeah. Can't beat that. Well, I think we see <laughs> kind of how these influences of like Tillich and H. Richard play out kind of as he moves on here, like as he moves into this next section where he starts talking about um, these different works that Niebuhr comes up with. Um, his- yeah, definitely. Um, I-, I wanted to end that with asking you guys, I mean, think about, you know, what, what kind of situation that had to have been for uh, all these faculty members giving up 5% and then you catching Tillich, you know, once he gets there, like bringing in the the fifth prostitute in a week, sneaking him into his room, you know, like yeah. the, the, Niebuhr was risking his neck to bring this guy in at, at great personal sacrifice to every single person that at Union Seminary. And, uh, and the guy shows up and just kind of is a, is a, is a clown. I mean, not a clown, but you know what I mean? Like that had to have pissed some people off, but, but anyway, so yes. Uh, so setting up these next works coming up and we, we should look at them. I think the, the way that Sabella is, is building this is he's going to offer a new perspective when it comes to uh, reflections on the end of an era. And by the way, I love this. I love this kind of bird's eye view that Sabella is giving us that uh, it's it's not so in the weeds. I think uh, in other bi- biographies that I've seen, you can see how his thought really develops from book to book. So he adds something with reflections of the of an era. He adds something else, uh, another aspect of kind of fulfilling his brother's prodding um, with interpretation of Christian ethics. And then they start to really converge and beyond and beyond tragedy. So, so let's start there. What is, what does, I guess, uh, Niebuhr do in reflections on the end of an era? I mean, one of the things I think Niebuhr goes to show is on, on the one hand, as you mentioned earlier, Cliff, that reflections on the end of an era is where Niebuhr shows that he's taken his brother's objection, that he doesn't take moral immoral man seriously enough to heart. And so uh, one of the things that um, Sabella writes, quote, in Moral Man, Niebuhr made it clear um, who was on the right and wrong sides of the struggle. Um, in Reflections, he pointed out that the, the way the good and evil intermingle in both sides of any given conflict. Mm-hmm. So this is probably where the big starting point is for, for our discussion. That even in the good, there's still evil, um, where it's maybe something that he would be slower to admit in Moral Man and Moral Society where kind of the benevolent energies of the individual um, well, can still be corrupted quite easily. Yeah. And I, I just wonder like if it represents, you know, cause I kind of, as we've been going through Niebuhr's life and engaging with it, I wonder if this book almost represents a, like, like you're saying, like, and, and Sabella really states 
he's confronted by his brother's kind of call back to faith, a certain specific type of faith, right? And I almost wonder if this is like his re-engagement with those ideas, you know, if, because he, he does talk about kind of experimenting with different ideas at this time, right? But all of a sudden he, he kind of comes to this realization that, you know, maybe, maybe faith is effective. Maybe it is effective. And I, it's almost like he's like re-embracing it and you can really see it um, play out and, and um, kind of in his indictments of all the things that he goes after in this book and in interpretation of Christian, or no. Sorry, well, in along with that, one of the big movements that he makes from more man and more sight to reflections on the end of an era is he takes the perspective from the individual who's kind of knee deep in the struggle and kind of sees through this individualist individualistic prism um, the, un, the events that are unfolding. And he removes himself from that position and takes a God perspective, a God's eye perspective of history, of time, of, of, uh, of good and evil. And he sees it from almost a biblical perspective that, where he starts getting, he starts to engage with the dramas of history and not just simply cause and effect, these things uh, occurring in kind of this Hegelian uh, thesis and to this synthesis, you know, flat understanding of history, but this multi-dimensional layered view um, of, of how history unfolds and finds its completion in God. Uh, I'll, I'll read this just small section from Sibeli. It says, a markedly different moral voice emerges as a result of this perspective shift. And moral man and moral, moral society, Niebuhr had written as a participant in the social struggle. In reflections, he located the struggle in the vast sweep of history. And moral man, Niebuhr had made it clear who was on the right and wrong sides of the struggle. In reflections, he pointed out the way that good and evil intermingle in both sides of any given conflict, what Aaron was talking about earlier. In Moral Man, he had written from the perspective of one who was embedded in the events he described. In reflections, he wrote from the God's eye perspective of what biographer Charles Whiteman Fox calls the cosmic commentator. Um, Fox describes Niebuhr's voice from the cosmic vantage point as Olympian and detached. This could be interpreted to suggest that Niebuhr's God was unconnected to human events, a divine clockmaker that set the, the mechanism of the universe in motion and then left it alone to borrow a popular image from European enlightenment. Niebuhr did indeed have a keen appreciation for divine mystery. As Helen Gaston observes, Niebuhr was aware of God as transcendent, as potentially inscrutable, as possibly unknowable in certain ways, yet Niebuhr was also aware of God as related to human affairs. His conception of grace suggested a distinctly Christian vision in which God's judgment and mercy hover over every moment of history. Hmm. Okay, good. What, what does he have to offer in interpretation of Christian ethics? Well, yeah, it says that he, it says, uh, you know, this is his, uh, they would say the, the um, reflections of the end of the era is this kind of, you know, Sibella describes it as a first foray into theology. Um, the next book, right, he, he begins to develop a, a, an ethical vocabulary. Um, he begins to unpack kind of what this looks like played out in the ethical sphere. Yeah, good. So the contrast would be, okay, so both of these, he's, he's getting into theology 
but one is on a macro scale and that is um, reflections on the end of an era. And then he dives down deep into the human condition. And Sabella is quick to point out that this is very influenced by Soren Kierkegaard and, um, and, and Tillich, you know, both of them and this interplay that we all have within us and how we evaluate systems and how we evaluate our role within the systems. I think one of the interesting takeaways from this book that I was like, you know, I can't wait to explore it. Probably won't explore it a lot right now um, just because we want to kind of touch on all the things that are located in this chapter. But, you know, he, he does talk about Niebuhr's understanding of myth. And I think it's, it's very revealing. And I think it's something Dorian didn't quite do a very good job of um, helping the reader understand what, what, what Niebuhr's conception of myth was. It's obviously very influenced by Tillich, very influenced. But he says on page uh, 41, the term myth is often used as a synonym for fable or to describe a story as untrue or unreal. For Niebuhr, however, myth describes language that relates to the time bound to the eternal and the infinite and the finite to the infinite. Myth is, in other words, in other words, was that category of language that enable us, enabled us to understand God and humanity as related. For language to accomplish this purpose, it had to take us beyond the rules of rational consistency. And so, man, I, I just, I was just sitting with that last night to try to understand it and try to grasp it because I think it's really hard to break away from like what my conception of myth is to try to read Niebuhr's conception of myth and not read it as that kind of just a, st a statement that's untrue or unreal. But in this book, obviously he articulates um, a sense that myth is this thing which we need in our lives. It's a, it's essential to finding meaning in life and and we can't like rid ourselves of it. We can't say, okay, we're just going <clears> to <throat> go with those stories of old that are only consistency with what is rational. We need myth mm -hmm. to help us to uh, engage with the eternal because otherwise then God is bound to those things, which we are bound to. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm still wrestling with this. I'm still trying to unpack it because it's such a fascinating view of things. You know, it's such a fascinating twist on this kind of, uh, language which i've heard for a long time this language of myth this language of like oh that's a fable that's a myth but neighbor saying hey this is an essential part of life this is an essential part of a healthy god-fearing life yeah we need myth in order to expand the rational categories into realms that incorporate freedom and morality um, if we just look at time and history as kind of this blocked cause and effect this block of cause and effect uh uh, predictable um, uh, type of way, then that flattens the human to a point where we are incapable of rising above our current place in history. But myth allows us to transcend and to see this thing in new ways. Um, something, one of Niebuhr's favorite ways of communicating this, he does it in interpretation of Christian ethics and he also does it in Beyond Tragedy, is that he uses the analogy of the, um, of the photograph versus the portrait. So the photograph just gives you a, a quick uh, view of reality, a flat view of, of the way things are, you know? Uh, there's really no action on, on the part of the photographer outside of just kind of capturing what reality he wants to take in. But with the, with the portrait artist, they have to lie in order to tell the truth. So the portrait artist has to show certain ways that things bend on a two-dimensional piece of paper that do not show reality, but 
But by lying, it actually shows the fuller view. It gives the appearance of three, three dimensions on a two-dimensional piece of paper. I don't know if that makes sense. So you almost have to break the rationality of truth in order to give a clear picture of what's actually going on. And to Niebuhr, miracles and myth grant this break in rationalism and the flat canvas of rationalism, Hegelianism, naturalism, idealism, these carefully uh, uh, cultivated snapshots of reality. And it creates a realm of freedom that transcends nature in order for us to think morally about ourselves and, and religion and, and society. So basically what you're getting at as well, maybe we should bring in a quote from Kierkegaard because this is quite relevant, that um, you must take a leap of faith in order to, when you are at the precipice or near the end of where reason can go to, to provide any sort of meaning or analysis, you have to jump beyond reason in order to have any concept of God, whatnot, these sorts of things, maybe even other qualitative things like love, death. They're much more existential um, the qualities and characteristics that really reason doesn't really provide any great analysis for. Um, but Niebuhr, instead of using the language of breaking or even jumping from and to, he says in the quote at the beginning of the session that reason must feed on faith and faith must feed on reason. Yeah. Which I think is quite different from what you're saying is breaking it's it's almost that both both of them are are interlinked. It might be more dialectical than than to say that it's just no. You're still or... telling the truth, but you just yeah. have to lie to tell the truth. You have to you have to break that um, that spell of rationalism in order to tell a deeper truth that that the, oh, that the pure rationalism can't find. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of like, and this is maybe getting into, I mean, this is, this feels like proto-narrative theology that he's doing here, but uh, it's kind of like if you just took a, a videotape of a parking garage for 24 hours, you're not getting any meaning from this. You're seeing people walk in, you know, get in their cars, leave you know, drive back in, pay their ticket, whatever. Uh, there's, there's no meaning here to be had whatsoever. It's just this, it's just this very small scope of something that is purely rational. Like this is, this is reality that you're seeing one-to-one -one ratio of reality. You're seeing it unfold right before you, but there's no yeah. meaning here. So you almost have to have different cameras fall. It's kind of like in a reality show where they have to edit reality in order to, to make it seem more real. I don't know if that makes sense. You almost have to cut it in certain places to construct a narrative for there to be meaning here that you're actually looking at, for, for it to be consumable um, for, for the audience. Or, or otherwise, I mean, even though one is more real, quote unquote, than the other, because there's no, uh, there's no creative element there, there's, no, there's nobody monkeying with the reality there's nobody cutting anything or constructing anything from this reality. It's pure reality, but there's no meaning there, you know? So we have to be involved with 
demeaning construction to a point where reason has to inform us, has to inform our faith, but faith ultimately has to inform the reason as well. Does that make sense? No, it, it does. I mean, when you look at it, a canvas or a picture or something, that's just a purely mechanical thing. And you can provide a calculation, right? A quantitative analysis like there's two ducks, there's five people getting into a car, grandma just got run over, oh my God. You know, whatever whatever's happening on that photo frame, um, what to find any sort of emotional or attribute any meaning to it, you have to jump beyond the mechanics yeah. contained within the photo or the picture. Let's take one, photo. let's take pure naturalism. Let's take pure sci- yeah. science, like how Dawkins would compose it or something like that. Dawkins basically just says we're all just machines. Okay. Uh, but there's no, there's no, um, there's no meaning there. We're all just deterministic machines. Like how, like, where's love? Where's justice? Uh, you almost have to tell a story in order to get that stuff. And the story is necessarily, it's a, it's, it's a myth. It's, it's something that kind of takes you out of that realm of rationality in order to create a meaning from what you're seeing. It's not lying. You're, well, it is kind of lying. You're, you're kind of lying in order to tell the, in, in order to tell the truth or take Hegelianism for, for instance, this uh, cause and effect, this uh, dialectic running through history the individual has no say in any of this. We are just socially defined beings. We are just a recipe of where we grew up and our social class and our race. Um, we, there's nothing unique about any of us, but we are all kind of constructed by history. And, mm-hmm. and this is what defines history. But then take a person like Shakespeare who says, no, historical events aren't caused by previous historical events. Historical events are caused by things like jealousy. So Shakespeare like rewrites history to be like all about jealousy and tragedy and irony. And these things that are only happen kind of on an individual personal level. Is it lying? Niebuhr would say kind of, but it's lying in order to tell the truth about the way that things actually are. Maybe we should kind of revisit this when we get, get into beyond tragedy, whenever we read that together. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Yeah. I, or he just says that it yeah, does a better so, job of explaining it. I mean, it, it's not, I mean, not even lying. It's just, it does a better job of explaining it. So it does a better job. It's of a fuller description. Uh, according yeah. to those, according to Hegel, it'd be lying because Hegel only sees us as kind of social or Marx. Marx would only see us as kind of social creatures, you know, um, bound to our class and, and that type of a thing. Let me, let me ask you this. Cause this, the, the, the sort of force of the, the, this project, interpretation of Christian ethics is Niebuhr going back from the cosmic view, the God's eye view, back to the, the view of the individual? So m- language of myth, as you're saying when you're referring to Shakespeare, that all these things happen because of jealousy, tragedy. These things happen on an individual basis, right? So myth functions as a as a mechanism to provide meaning to individual events yes those sort of spill over Mm -hmm. into collective things 
maybe like ideologies, but how how does the language? I mean, maybe we're getting too far from Niebuhr, but how what would Niebuhr say would encapsulate the myth jumping from individual to collective? Yeah, he wouldn't use words like ideology. He I mean he probably would use something like naturalism, the generality that he would probably say right i think in uh in nature Dustin man he uses terms like a governing center or something like that um but he will use myth in this place um so the big distinction is the god's eye view comes from reflections of the end of an era think of that like a telescope he is making really big things all kind of collapse into one single view like he's looking at the grand scale of history and and, and the world and then interpretation of Christian ethics is more like he's using a microscope. He's looking at small things within us, but kind of uh, blowing them up into kind of these myths and the ways that we continue to, to function within reality. And this is where he's going to find, I think, that how powerful of a voice uh, scripture is to kind of the inner monologue and desires and passions and drives of the human being. It sees the ways that we sin. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but, uh, but to go kind of, I'll go ahead, Zach. Well, it's just interesting because, you know, it's interesting that as he makes this transition, right. From the, into Christian ethics, suddenly, you know, he's still out preaching a lot, but suddenly churches don't want to hear this. You know what I mean? Suddenly Mm -hmm. churches don't want to engage with this. They don't want to, um, his daughter is quoted as saying, um, Elizabeth recalls that there were two churches, possibly three, the whole of the United States had asked him to come and preach. So uh, he was touching base with people, but, and obviously he was traveling a lot and preaching a lot, but they were not that interested in his church. You know, probably one of those churches was Riverside, which is right across the street from union. A lot of the faculty went there, but yeah, Mm. that's funny. Yeah. As soon as he becomes more theological, nobody wants to hear it because this isn't, he isn't telling them, an easy believism like what they might find at a Billy Graham crusade. Um, he's telling them something dark about themselves, you know, and he's, he's, he's making them uh, make difficult decisions about their stance on political events and, uh, and the way that they understand world history. So yeah, that that's taboo today too, you know, in churches. I loved that um, that they uh, drew from some witnesses, from some people who attended there, and yeah. like what what they said um, about about that experience of watching him preach. It's amazing to me as somebody who came into Niebuhr first reading about him, and then just reading him, uh, having never really heard him preach, but to hear that he's actually primarily a preacher. Yeah, pretty sweet. Kind of a bummer, though, man, like to know that, like, you know, Sabella writes all these reactions, you know, from an atheist, you know, uh, Supreme Court judge who was very impressed to, you know, my favorite is the one by the Anglican Archbishop, uh, William Simple, who says, at last, I've met the disturber of my peace. And I just think that's so (laughs) that's so Niebuhr. Like, he is very much a disturber of your peace. He doesn't let you I love that so much. Yeah, there were some yeah. su- there were some sweet gems in here. Let's go the on one about profile, sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely put that in the profile. Uh, the 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 quote from the Supreme Court justice, the atheist. I'm looking for that. Hold on, because that we really should read that. Supreme Court justice uh, and lifelong atheist Felix Frankfurter. 
greeted him by saying, may a believing unbeliever thank you for your sermon. To which Niebuhr replied, may a unbelieving believer thank you for appreciating it. <laughs> yeah. He's good at the, he's good at the so comeback. Witty. So witty. That's good. good. Uh, any words on uh, Beyond Tragedy? Well, I mean, so much could be said. I mean, I think we've already touched on some of it. You know, his engagement with myth, his engagement with the use of kind of the biblical stories to, um, you know, discuss the interplay of sin and redemption in history. Um, I think probably we'll probably expand on that in the future when we when we go through this. Yeah, that's one of the books we're going to be really getting into one of these days. Yeah. Um, H, it's important to note H. Richard, his brother, loved this particular collection, calling Beyond Tragedy, quote, the best theology which has appeared in America in a generation or two. I am. Um, the one thing that I found peculiar, but quite touching is is neighbor's assessment of the tower of babel mm-hmm. and its relevance uh for today um it's on page 49 the second paragraph well maybe i'll read from the first just every artifact of human civilization aspires in some way to this false permanence um Every form of human culture, whether religious, rational, or scientific, is subject to the same corruption because all are products of the same human heart, which tries to deny its finite limitations. So on the one hand, even in our current society, there is this sort of unrelenting optimism in our technological capabilities. And, and that's seen as a, the, the, the capacity for our ability to be scientific and inquisitive is seen as just a genuine, a, a genuine curiosity that is almost incorruptible. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you throw out things like, well, the Nazis use science and da 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 da, whatever. Um, and then he goes on to say that, you know, it may be tempting to see God's disruption of Babel's construction uh, of that tower by confounding human language as an unfair punishment. But Niebuhr argued that a closer reading of the Bible story revealed that punishment to be an act of mercy. Hmm. And so insofar as the pluralist society we live in, the way in which we have all these differences are not seen as a, a, a horrible or evil thing, but it is an act of mercy on God. And how does, I guess, technology that can bridge a lot of the, our differences our languages, our geography. Is, is this kind of just another fruit of us rebuilding a tower? Um, are, is this going to necessarily lead to a, kind of a hubris that will once again spell our own demise? I mean, you wrote the PhD on it, man, so I don't know. <laughs> Dude, we're going to wait on that because I did write <laughs> on technology and Niebuhr. Um, but I do, I, I, I want to point out um, this relationship that he sees, he sees power, first of all, as ambiguous technology as increasing in that power and therefore increasing in ambiguity. Um, and so that ambiguity actually creates more anxiety. So what the kind of features that create our anxiety is this, this finiteness that's never going away. We're animals. We're always going to be locked into this, um, these necessities like like we need food we need shelter um we are all going to die 
Um, we have a limited scope, all these types of things. But then we're armed kind of with this technology that can destroy the world, that can uh, do quite a bit. We can learn about famines on the other side of the earth today on our Twitter feed or whatever. And this increase in power, but maintaining the same level of limitations creates kind of this incredibly confounding anxiety about the world that we all have. Our, suddenly our consciousness is beyond what anybody ever could have imagined a hundred years ago. Um, to be able to know about tragedies as they are occurring anywhere in the world, Twitter is obviously going to be a cesspool. Um, a, a lot of times people, people look at social media, Facebook, Twitter, we're like, oh, this is making us worse. No, it's like, I, I believe, according to Niebuhr, it's just revealing the reality that's kind of been hidden to us for a long time. Uh, most people are bad people, <laughs> you know, most people are a bunch of jerks and most people do not think critically about themselves. And, and Twitter just kind of exposes these things. Maybe the other issues as well, I mean, certainly as power increasingly becomes more ambiguous with the sort of proliferation of our technology is along with the certainty that technology apparently provides people see the world as less ambiguous to an extent is that we an, have that everything illusion? I mean, of course, I think it is. Yeah. And I think Niebuhr would probably say, well, I think I'm pretty sure Niebuhr would say that as well. 99.99% would say that as well. But I mean, if you think with the availability we have at our hands, like you're saying with Twitter, we're able to view the suffering of other people right in front of us. We're able to see what politicians say at a moment's notice. There's this sort of weird sense that we just know what's happening in the world, mm-hmm. even when we're confused and confounded by it. We're seeing more crazy beliefs now. I mean, a lot of people are really shaken by conspiracy theories and stuff like that. This type of crap's always been around. People have always believed in crazy stuff. Uh, Now they can become more unified around certain views, maybe. Uh, Maybe we don't have this cult over in the, you know, the Northwest United States and this other cult, you know, over in Europe somewhere. But they can uh, come together in chat forums and, and uh, consolidate narratives and, and they can build that way. <clears throat> but generally, it's, it's kind of the same problem recapitulating, but it, it feels different because yeah. we're also aware of it. Completely. It, it almost seems like, you know, in order to get to a, a place of hope, you have to go through the tragic first. You have to acknowledge the tragic. Yeah. But a lot of times... I think it's probably one of the over uh, underwritten messages in beyond tragedy, but a lot of people today, including Christians and sometimes us, probably we don't think of ourselves as tragic characters. Yeah. We think of ourselves as just God's gift to to her. Yeah. And we're in control of things. Yeah, exactly. And technology expands that kind of myth, like, and, and therefore, creates more crippling anxiety when we don't get it, you know? Uh, um, Yeah. But more on that at another time. So if it's okay with you guys, let's, uh, I say we, we skip, we're running out of time here. Let's say we uh, skip uh, nature and destiny. Um, 
we'll save well, that for another time because that's going to be the we can at least say what it does uh, yeah go ahead, zach no just give it a summary man i think the you know we don't have to touch on everything you know what i mean we could just say hey like he wrote this book and you know this is what it was about and we're gonna explore this later in the podcast you know what i mean like tune in later you know what i mean we don't have to were you gonna do it well you know go, go ahead cliff just you go ahead and summarize it because i all i wanted people to know is that this, this is an epic thing and, and nature and destiny of man is like we can't summarize it here right now you know what i mean it's it's a very it's a tome it's like 800 pages and it is but it comes at a very consequential moment of history i mean you know the nazis are bombing the uk and he is here standing there giving this speech as bombs are going off in the distance i mean that's pretty but yet, you know, he's talking about the nature and destiny of man. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty epic. Okay, so nature and destiny of man is about, uh, it's basically about um, human nature and uh, the way that we understand human destiny and how these things ultimately affect the way that we live. He classically starts off, you know, it's, it's epic how he begins nature and destiny of man with, with the sentence that all men are their own, uh, we are all our own most vexing problem. And then continues to unpack how we are never resolved and our attempt to resolve ourselves, resolve the incongruities of life is actually a form of pride or a form of resignation. It's a form or sensuality. It always results itself in sin whenever we try to simplify who we are. He gives a whole bunch of views that have kind of come to define what Western civilization is through Western philosophy, uh, naturalism, rationalism, idealism. There's always one that I leave out. Na naturalism. Oh, romanticism. And, and shows how they all construct this very simple human being and how this very simple construction ultimately leads to us sinning. It ultimately leads to us kind of, kind of creating these false systems that perpetuate evil. But what we need at the center is this constant nagging uh, conscience about us that Niebuhr says Christianity uniquely grants to us. It uniquely gives us this uneasy conscience that is never quite at home anywhere we are, whether that's a political view, uh, whether that's a philosophical view or a religious view. If you have this Christian uneasy conscience about you, it is constantly knocking down idols and constantly forcing you to examine your participation and how that is unfolding uh, in, in history. Um, so it's, it's in a lot of ways an apologetic. Um, and it's talking about how we need to confront the fact that we are evil freaking sinners. And, uh, and the best way to deal with that is to rely on grace that God will complete this action, all of our greatest hopes in history, um, but also to be wary of our best intentions even, uh, to be wary of even our most carefully constructed philosophical systems, to be wary of even our safest countries uh, and our best constitutions, that sin finds a way to slither its way inside of the places we feel most safe. And so he, he basically said, makes the argument that only Christianity, only this view of Christianity, of the view of human nature and sin, can save Western civilization. That we need the Nazis to look inside themselves and to doubt 
and to have an uneasy conscience about what they're doing and to realize that they are constructing a Tower of Babel and to realize the destruction that that, that, that can incur on humanity. Uh, we need people in other Western states to rise up and see how their uh, simple ideologies and simple philosophies are causing them to resign themselves to not being a part of the solution in Germany. So while he, and Zach was just talking about this, while he is unfolding this huge tome, uh, an important uh, book on human nature and destiny and sin and all these things, they are dropping bombs right outside of where Niebuhr is speaking, evidencing every point that he is making in sheer terror among the people who are listening in. Sabella says that Niebuhr doesn't even notice <laughs> the bombs that are dropping as he's speaking. But it's a very powerful moment to, to be able to sit there and reflect on human sin as bombs are being dropped around you. It's, uh, yeah, it's very, incredibly powerful. Can we wrap it there? Yeah, so the chapter concludes with a debate that Niebuhr has about intervention uh, in, in Germany. And uh, it's all for naught, like uh, almost immediately after he does the debate, uh, Pearl Harbor happens and the U.S. is engaged in World War II. So, uh, so that's, that's pretty much where the chapter wraps up. So, yeah, so that about does it for this episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe. Uh, make sure you write us a good review uh, if you haven't yet, if you're liking it. And make sure you follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor for all the updates and news. And maybe uh, we'll throw some Neighbor quotes and other goodies at you to keep you going throughout the week. Um, so thanks for listening, everybody, and stay safe out there.